This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Relationships are getting harder because we're limiting social experiences and social exposure. Time we would have spent with other people, we're spending in these rabbit holes of entertainment. It's a problem getting worse. And I think an easy way to see that is the increase in loneliness. 36% of adults identify as severely lonely, 61% of adolescents and teens. A lot of people's relationships are through social media. Those aren't necessarily high quality relationships that you can count on and when you really need them. That's why this is such an important problem to work on. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Roman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to accomplished entrepreneur and longtime friend of the pod, James Veraldi, the CEO and co-founder of Loop, a company focused on improving the world's social and mental health. So as you probably already know by now, I host a third podcast that is not about comic books, Learnings from Leaders, the PNG alumni podcast. Each week, we sit down with leading executives and accomplished entrepreneurs to talk about their personal and professional experiences, at the core of which are a really defined set of purpose, values, and principles. While James is not a PNG alumni, he's a longtime colleague and creative partner who has done a lot of work with PNG throughout his career, and someone whose work embodies the very purpose, values, and principle-driven approach to work that so many of us PNGers hold true. I met James early in my PNG days and had the privilege of knowing him across my entire professional career, where my admirations for his curiosity, tenacity, and purpose has only grown. And as you may have noticed, we're starting to mix up the format on this podcast, conversations that aren't the usual big brand leaders we started with. But don't worry, we'll be sure to keep bringing you those conversations with strong FMOD appeal. But we want to keep it interesting and seek the most valuable learnings wherever we can, because let's face it, the SMOD is equally as important. Do let us know what you think by sending us a note at pgalumpod at gmail.com. And as always, we'd love your reviews on Apple Podcasts. But back to today's conversation with James Veraldi, the CEO and co-founder of Loop. Here's a quick bio. James currently serves as co-founder and CEO of Loop, a new digital social health platform focused on helping people overcome their obstacles when it comes to building healthy relationships and confidence in their day-to-day social interactions. James began this recent chapter while serving as an entrepreneur in residence at GGV Capital. Prior to that, he led product strategy at TikTok, which he joined in early 2017, prior to its 2018 acquisition and rebranding from ByteDance. Prior to TikTok, James led content strategy at Snapchat, which followed his work as a founding team member at Fullscreen, which was acquired by Otter Media in 2014. And he worked extensively with P&G, Danone, and many other top brands when he co-led a small digital content agency called the Zyzo Group, where his team was on the earliest forefront of branded content marketing. James also had early career experiences at Target, Viacom, and Accenture. James also spends a lot of his time in the climate and conservation spaces, where he has done a number of angel investments in climate tech and founded a popular platform and podcast called Animalia, where he leads discussions on a number of climate and conservation solutions. James is a dog lover, beekeeper, and even rehabilitates the occasional squirrel or crow. Now, what I've always found most interesting about James is not that he has a bookended career starting with Accenture and Target, and later being among the earliest insiders at what some would call the biggest media players of our modern era, YouTube, Snapchat, TikTok, where James continued to do more than a little bit of work with top companies like P&G and Danone. What's actually more interesting that is along the way, like so many of us, James felt a calling to solve bigger problems. Only James got out and put it all on the line to do something about it, and this is why I wanted to bring him on the podcast for a chat. Obviously, there's his work in conservation and climate at Animalia, but equally and more important is James's work at Loop. During James's time working with top media and internet companies, inspired by his own observations and challenges with mental health, 
and the broader impact that social media is having on all of our collective mental health, James decided to found Loop, a platform built to tackle mental health challenges, starting with social anxiety. Look, whether or not we want to talk about it or not, we all have experiences with mental health in our own lives and or with people we love. This is important stuff, and it's the kind of work that's the very definition of touching lives, improving life. With Loop, James is doing some of the most important work I have line of sight to. You know, someone much smarter than me once said, there are two kinds of entrepreneurs, the ones who build something because it's cool and the ones who build something because they can't live in a world where it doesn't exist. James is clearly in the second camp. Today in the U.S., 36% of adults identify as severely lonely, 61% of adolescents and teens. That's a big number that identifies severely lonely. And what the clinical science shows is that this is a product of lacking high quality relationships in your life and work. Too many people today struggle with building social relationships and succeeding in different social situations at work, which can range from speaking up in meetings, asking for help, building rapport with colleagues, or giving critical feedback. This is especially a challenge for the younger millennial and Gen Z workforce today. For those who experience these different social anxieties, this has a potentially massive impact on performance, productivity, and overall engagement and retention. So while Loop has built solutions for individuals, they're increasingly starting to do work with companies big and small using the principle of exposure training, using a combination of a gamified mobile experience with professional human support to encourage positive behavior change efficiently and effectively. If you're a manager of people like so many of us are, this feels like a no-brainer. So, so if you're an executive or an HR stakeholder or no one who'd like to learn more about Loop, you can learn more about them and sign up for a free 30-day trial, no strings attached, for you and some of your colleagues. Just visit loop.co slash work. That's loop.co slash work. But beyond that, I know you're really going to enjoy hearing this conversation with an accomplished entrepreneur like James, not just about his career journey and leadership lessons along the way, but how he found himself building meaningful solutions for the world of social and mental health. And hopefully you can find a way to be inspired on how you can make a difference. James, welcome to the pod. Thanks for joining. Absolutely. James, we've known each other for quite a long time. And while folks have already heard about your career journey, and we're going to dig into that a little bit more, I guess what I'd really like to hear first is, who were you before you began your career journey? Yeah, I mean, I was definitely an introvert. I would think I spent a lot of my sort of really teenage years riding solo a lot for a lot of different reasons. Being a kid, being a teenager can be, can be tough, socially speaking, sometimes, and uh, kind of drove a lot of uh, my curiosity in life, and I think that's probably one of my defining attributes that has also exemplified my career is I'm just sort of insatiably curious about things. But I think being a little solo from a social standpoint growing up, you know, I tend to just dig into things and and read stuff and watch stuff. And I think some of that curiosity definitely has played a big role in my life. What was the first way you made money? Well, I was, so I was living in France as a kindergartner. My dad worked for Exxon. So that's mm-hmm. how we were there for a year. And I was charged. I brought my big wheel over. If you know the big wheel, it's a big <laughs> hit. And they did not I'm have- I'm surprised you got that on the plane. Okay. They did not have big wheels in France. And I could also just be misremembering some of these details. But I remember sort of charging kids for like rides on the big wheel, <laughs> like a couple francs. And uh, Yeah. <laughs> You know, there, there's an actual interesting thread there because, yes, you're an introvert, but your kind of entrepreneurial spirit was kind of there in full effect. Do you think that's how you discovered what you were good at? I don't know. I was so young and, and I think people were just fascinated by the big wheel. And I was like, all right, well, like, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> but it, it's so fuzzy. And again, for all I know, I could have just been giving it away and thinking I, I actually charged me money and never did. So, yeah. <laughs> well. How do you think you're similar to that younger version of yourself or even different from him? I mean, I, I still tend to sort of retreat to my bubble a little bit. And uh, like introverts, like we, you know, we sort of we get our energy from being alone. We give a lot of energy when we're with others. And that still holds true for me today, for sure. Mm-hmm. I really mm-hmm. need my like, alone recharge time, even like thinking, and this comes up a lot at work. Like I'm, I'm not so great at, you know, figuring something out or coming up with a solution in a live meeting, mm-hmm. but get me out of the meeting. I, and give me a chance to think about it and I can, 
So I think, I think those kind of traits are, are still there. And I mean, I'm different probably in a, in a, in a lot of ways for sure. <laughs> you don't have a big wheels. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. I no longer ride a big wheel, I ride an adult bicycle. I think like people are just constantly evolving. I'm constantly evolving and changing. So to, to answer like how I'm different than I was as a kid in every way, in some ways, I mean, yeah, there's things I eat now that I didn't eat back then. I mean, I'm, you know, I've been eight years plant-based and you would have told me as a teenager that, you know, I was, I would be plant-based one day. I would have told you to take a hike and you're out of your mind. Like I would never do that. So there's things, things like that. Yeah. So I want to jump into your career because there's, there's just so much there, not just in what you're doing right now, but the story and kind of how you got there. But if we kind of go to the very beginning, and I think we both met at the beginning of our careers, right? And I think we kind of had these like intermittent moments where we met each other and we got to work together, but we weren't really kind of seeing each other's accomplishments. So what was that moment where you kind of were finding your groove? Were there any of those like early defining career moments? That you so I started my career in more corporate roles. I started at Accenture and then I went to Target. And I definitely learned early on that I don't fit large, mature companies. <laughs> I'm I'm just a builder, and you know I even think now as as like in the startup space, I'm really more valuable on that zero to one, zero to two phase than mm-hmm. I am beyond that. Part of that is I like wearing a lot of hats. I like getting involved. I'm not so good at like staying in a lane. Although even you know in a startup, it's it's still helpful to do that. And it's something I continue to get better at from a discipline standpoint. But I also just, once a lot of the human politics happen and I'm not, I'm not the right person to manage a team of hundreds of people. It's not where my strength is. I'm a problem solver and just kind of scrappy. That's like just my nature. And so early on in my career, I quickly learned those bigger roles are not good for me. A lot of times I would finish my work. I mean, this happened to Target a lot where I was a assistant buyer in cutlery uh-huh. and I would finish my work for the day, you know, around two or three and not, I would just now start doing somebody else's work. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I don't know. I want to do something else. And I, I don't want to just go home and veg out, but then that would frustrate that person. And in those corporate environments, it's like hard to collaborate in a kind of fluid way. You right. know what I mean? And so, yeah, I kind of learned quickly that that wasn't wasn't for me. How long did you kind of stick with it before the lesson, the almost a self inflicted lesson, started to stick in that? Eh, you know, maybe, maybe the corporate life wasn't for you. Like, what was that moment? What was that realization where you realized you had to shift lanes? Getting fired by both companies. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like honestly, like I think there's a lot of negative stigma around like too much negative stigma around getting fired. It's sort of seen as like this, just like unrecoverable black mark, you know? And, and the truth is it's like, it doesn't need to be in in both cases. It wasn't like I was fired for wrongdoing or, you know, I like did something obscene or anything in both cases. In those early days, I wasn't staying in my zone good enough. I wasn't, you know, I struggled collaborating in those early days with people and I, and I think a lot of that stemmed from just some of my lack of social development, social exposure as growing up. Now, now, now I realize that at the time I didn't know that I thought I was fine, just like everybody else. And I struggled with that. And I struggled with, you know, kind of not like, I don't know how to like say this. Um, it would be perceived as stepping on toes or things like that. And then when those situations happen, I didn't really do a good job of mediating that because I didn't really know how I didn't really have the kind of social skills at the time to do that. And so in both cases, it was just, Hey, your work is good, but the experiences people have in working with you, they can get frustrated. And so given you're like an entry level employee, we're just going to cut bait. <laughs> and, and that's what I mean. I think it's fine. I mean, there's lessons I had to learn. They were valuable lessons they were key to my development and they also weren't the right jobs for me. Yeah. And so I don't, yeah, I don't think it has to be seen as so negative right. when someone loses their job. Well, and it's also better to learn the lesson early on, right? Because yeah. 
God forbid, you stay, any of us stays in a place that we're not able to contribute, we're not able to thrive. And I guess by the time I met you, several years have passed, right? Now Mm -hmm. you're this, you were a creative, you were a creator, and you were making cool shit. But not only that, you were kind of able to kind of read between the lines. And where did those lessons come from? Because, you know, just looking at your career path, you spent time in kind of media and entertainment before you even got to creative development. How did you discover your way into what you were good at? So when we met, I was at Zyzo, which is where I started working with Proctor. And, you know, it was a much better environment for me. So so, so some context, Zyzo Group, when I joined it, was a super small little like strategy shop started by a guy named Roger Fishman, who had previously been head of marketing at CAA. And so when clients like Procter & Gamble, which is how he he had a good relationship with the kind of C-suite there, they would go through Roger and how they work with celebrities and talent and mm-hmm. in the kind of Hollywood world. And Roger started this with the idea of just being like a, like initially like a strategy consultant and then maybe like incubating some business ideas. Shortly after I joined, this was 2007. This was just when brands started creating content you know, online. Mm-hmm. I mean, yep. now it's like, you know, it's, just, it's like we want them to stop <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> but at the time it was, it was pretty revolutionary. I and mean, this is still the world where you're accessing the internet through AOL and Yahoo and MSN, right? That's, yeah. that's still the world back then. And I thrive in the sense of just figuring something out from scratch. Like you had this on one hand, I have a boss in Roger who has really good relationships with senior people at Proctor that he could make available. And I had this idea of brands creating content as a form of marketing online and releasing it through these portals. Mm -hmm. And I I had to figure it out. And Roger and I would spend time with P&G team leads, brand managers, things like that, and kind of pitching them. And we sort of figured it out together. And like, that is where I realized I really thrive and sort of just figuring out what's next versus managing what exists. And I think that was the first time I was able to really flex those muscles and realize that that's I'm much better suited for that. Yeah. Are there any uh, memorable stories or memorable projects that you worked on that oh, yeah. kind of made you know you enjoyed the work or, or more importantly, what were the parts of it that maybe you didn't like? Yeah, for sure. So going back to the Zyzo Proctor days, I think it was 2008. Pampers had a a pretty big PR crisis with a diaper rash breakout mm-hmm. that was tied to a change they made, and and and, mm-hmm. and not all of their diapers, but some of it. And mm-hmm. you know, Pampers is is one of the most historic, just incredible brands that it really has like you know just an, like a spotless history in a lot of ways. And so this was like a big, and this happens like when you're innovating and, and iterating on products, like, you know, especially in that space, these, these things, they don't happen. I think it's the only time it's happened to Pampers because they have, again, they have a pretty spotless track record on this front. Mm-hmm. And it was a, it was a big scare. It was a big concern for the brand. And we had just started working with them and I was flown to Cincinnati along with Roger. And we were kind of in a war room for a while with the at the time the Pampers brand manager Jody Allen, who you know rest in peace, we lost Jody sadly a couple of years ago. She was a remarkable, yeah. remarkable person. Mark Pritchard, I think, was a CMO of Proctor back then. I think he would come in and out, and and of course like their media agencies, their their like lead creative shops, and then there was Roger and I, like the little digital agency that has like done one <laughs> tiny project just in the room, and it was interesting because like it was my first time seeing this kind of dialogue at this level with these kind of stakes and being in that room. And for a lot of it was, okay, well, how do we get out in front of this? First and foremost, from a PR standpoint, that's where a lot of the concern is because the actual problem itself wasn't still going on. And it's just, you know, a couple incidents had happened that I don't even remember if it was like proven that it came from the Pampers diapers, but there was enough hysteria from a couple reviews and stuff like that, whether we had to kind of get out in front of it. And what Roger and I voiced, what I originally developed with my creative team too, Gio, Jordan, just two other awesome guys that were part of things back then was that like, why don't we change the narrative in terms of like correcting or or, or trying to answer the negative and show the positive of Pampers and Pampers had 
this line of business for preemie babies that, you know, I didn't know anything about as someone who's never had a child, didn't know much about, but Pampers does this incredible work throughout the country of donating diapers and creating solutions for preemie babies. And it's a really like an a incredible part of their brand story, but it never really been told. And we decided like part of the solution, not the only solution, but part of the solution of getting past this negative moment would be to create a documentary series around what Pampers does for preemies and the incredible role they play in helping preemies and their parents get through that brutal process where, you know, there's a lot of unknown. I'm not sure if the baby's going to survive and make it. And, you know, she or he does, like, there's still a lot of risk. And, you know, it's a very emotional kind of experience. And Pampers just plays this awesome role in in helping. And we created this docuseries and released it through Yahoo. And it, it just got tremendous positive pickup. And slowly, it was part of shifting the narrative from a wider press standpoint of like, look, look at the awesome things Pampers does and sort of kind of trying to drown out the negative with the positive. And that was a big, you know, that was a big win for Pampers. It was a big win for us as a small team. It was a big win for me of being part of creating a solution and a big moment for a big company and a big brand. And so that was definitely something that was memorable. What was the lesson learned for you out of that entire moment? I mean, I think lesson learned one, tough to get things done when there's a lot of people in a room with a lot of opinions. (laughs) (laughs) How do you navigate that? I think you just got to pick your spots. Like you got to know when, what moments to share it. And you just, you really just have to experience it. Like, I don't think there's any formula for, okay. So for all of you out there who have not done, been in this situation before, this is exactly what you do and you'll have success. No, because there's so many human elements that are unpredictable and personalities that are unpredictable. And you kind of just have to put yourself in those situations where you're figuring things out with a group of people in a tough moment. And you just got to learn through experience. And I had the benefit of having a very experienced people around the table that I could learn from. And so a lot of osmosis for me, but it's one of those things where I don't know if there's any instruction manual you can give Mm -hmm. to somebody and then they're going to absolutely succeed in those situations. You you really just kind of got to go through them and, and you also got to mess up sometimes too, or say the wrong thing and be okay doing that too. Yeah. Well, that, that, that actually brings me to kind of the next place. Like as your career progresses, you know, we we all know it's not all roses. I mean, you went on to do some really interesting things after Zyzo. And I think that's when we started work together on Zyzo, but then we started to really keep in touch in all the other roles Mm -hmm. and, you know, some of the hottest tech and video kind of at the time startups Mm -hmm. that are now kind of just household names today between Snap, between what's now TikTok, et cetera. Across your career, as you continue to evolve and grow, were there things that maybe didn't work out quite the way you thought it would? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. After Zyzo Group, I was part of the founding team at Fullscreen, which was in the YouTube creator space. And this is where the company founded by a guy named George Strompolis, who obviously remains a good friend. And he was part of the YouTube partner program. And and actually, I think his name was on the patent of the partner program. So he was really like the catalyst for digital creators getting paid by platforms, which now is ubiquitous across platforms. And, you know, George and whoever he worked with at YouTube at the time, you know, are really the, the drivers of that. He had me join him pretty early on with my experience with Proctor and the ad space. And because we were going to kind of monetize and help sell ads and integrations on the, on some of the channels we were representing. And that was some of the early work I led there at full screen, but in terms of things, not working out as planned. So once we got through our series a, we decided there was kind of like some internal discussions of like, okay, we have this sort of talent representation business. We have this channel management business, but they're not real assets, right? In terms of like long-term value. And we wanted to figure out what asset we could create. And there was sort of a divide of some of us saw an opportunity to build this kind of like fandom platform where we would, you know, sort of build apps or websites specifically for specific creators and their fans interact. And then me and a couple other people saw more opportunity in the subscription video space. This is at the time where Netflix is really the only, only game in town on original content online. So this mm-hmm. is before, or right as Hulu was launching, I guess it was those two, but 
well before the kind of SVOD wars that we have today. And we saw an opportunity to create a, a subscription video platform that sat sort of in between YouTube and Netflix, like catered a little younger. Some of the Netflix shows, you know, the original shows like, or- like Orange and the New Black and House of Cards skewed a little older. And so we saw this opportunity to create longer form premium digital content geared for younger folks. But I think like didn't really anticipate the sheer volume of money and capital needed to fund an initiative like that and to keep funding content way ahead of revenue to start those things and the kind of losses you have to incur and how hard it is to make hits in the original video space and in, mm-hmm. in long form mm-hmm. space, but even, even the short form space too, but especially in the long form space. And so it didn't turn out as we had hoped. And I ended up leaving shortly after we got acquired by Outer Media to go to Snap. So I, I sort of left post incubating it, but just before it fully launched. But it, yeah, it just didn't turn out as we had thought it would be as we thought it would and kind of underestimated the capital needs and just the difficulty of turning out hits in that world. Yeah. How did these things not working out? Like how did, how did that kind of inform or influence the next decisions or the things you would go on to do? I think you try to take away some lesson from every setback, every failure, but for me, I'm wired. It doesn't stop me from wanting to try again. Like, I think there are some people out there that can get pretty deterred by failure and like, okay, well, I'm not good at that. Like, okay, I'm not good at creating a new thing from scratch. I'm going to go work for a company again or something like that. And this is not how I looked at it. So, I mean, each time you have a setback, there are lessons you can learn from it and take away from it. You know, that old adage, like you learn more from failure than success. It's absolutely true, but it's only true if you're willing to have the awareness of it and to process it right and not dwell on the negative. And, and I've had that issue in my life where I can get kind of defeatist on, against myself and mm-hmm, feel defeated. Mm-hmm. And I think that also is rooted in the kind of comparison game that we play with each other. You know, I spent too much of my time comparing myself to what other people were doing in my industry and success they were having and I wasn't having and, you know, LinkedIn presence versus mine. And I think social media at a whole has sort of corrupted our brains a little bit. And, you know, LinkedIn has turned into a social media platform in its own mm-hmm. way as well. And so we're always kind of caught in these comparison cycles. And I think if you are caught up in that comparison cycle while having a setback, it's really hard to get back up. Yeah. And you've got to drop the comparison game because it just, it doesn't matter really. It took me a long time to learn that. And I really only in the last few years have I learned that and right. got past that. Like it doesn't matter what anybody else is doing. It just doesn't matter. And there's no point even thinking about it. And so, yeah, that's a lesson that took me a long time to learn too long, but I'm glad I, I finally got there. You know, you know, it's funny. Me too, right? Like that, that's something throughout both my corporate career, and my startup career, that keeping up with the Joneses and even though you can know it and you can stare it in the face and you can give yourself the equipment to deal with it, it still creeps up. It's it's like it's in the back. And when you're not paying attention, it still comes roaring back if you're not careful. And it's almost like a practice to kind of manage it. It's not something that can be, I hate to say, beaten forever. You just have to kind of find the other things to fill the space. So this is where we've talked in the latter part of your career. You go on after full screen, you go on to Snap, you go on to ByteDance, and you have all these great experiences. But now you, you're kind of teaching yourselves these lessons along the way. How are these things occurring to you? Like, because you're clearly not doing that now based on what you built. And I'd love to understand some of those experiences. Sure, the cool stories of working at awesome companies that people think are so cool, like Snap and TikTok. But like, what were your experiences on the inside that revealed to you that there was a deeper itch that you had to go scratch? Well, I think I took different things away from those different experiences that led me to this. So with, with Snapchat... You know, it was my first time. I, I mean, I started working in product and just for context. When I say product, I mean like technology product. But I started working on the product side of the tech industry a little bit at full screen. We had acquired actually a company called Viddy and acquired two incredible entrepreneurs, JJ and Ken. JJ is still someone I look up to and have a lot of admiration for. And he's like, like one of the best designers, product designers and just product minds I've ever met. And I started learning from him a little bit, and then I got the kind of bug for that, and and that was part of what drove me to Snap. When I think Snap was around 100 employees when I joined, so past the starting blocks, but it was still like pretty early. I think I joined like a week or two after Stories launched, 
as a feature, but maybe a little bit after that, but it was still a young company. And Snap's founder, Evan, is an incredible product designer and just the attention to detail and value of UI UX. Like I, I hadn't really experienced that until I was at Snap and just saw the process that goes behind creating something that, you know, you, people would look at the app. And at the, again, at the time, there's a lot more features in Snap now and group chat and stuff, but it was pretty simple. And most products start in a very simple place, but people don't really appreciate the work that goes behind that simplicity and the R&D and the process and the small details. And I really, you know, learned that even I wasn't driving it per se. My job at Snap was content strategy when we launched Discover and doing those deals and how we're going to monetize them. But I took every chance I could to join and just sit in on product meetings, design meetings that Evan was leading just to sit there and listen. Cause I was really fascinated by it. And he obviously had a incredible talent and just instinct for it since, you know, he obviously started snap when he was quite young. And then I got a chance to start to flex those muscles at snap when I was able to eat some of the product work on live stories, which was still part of the kind of content division. And I just really liked that. And I think, Part of the reason I went over to Musical.ly, which for folks is the origin of TikTok, we rebranded it after the acquisition from ByteDance, was I wanted to be more in a dedicated product role. And that opportunity wasn't really there for me at Snap at the time. And so, I, but I took a lot of that away from it. And so at Musical.ly and TikTok, I got a chance to really lead product work and learn through that and learn through how to lead you know, engineers and what information they need and designers. And I got to work si alongside, and then again, another amazing product design mind, Alex Jew, who is the co-founder of Musical.ly. And, you know, I learned a lot through that experience. And also then at ByteDance, I learned a lot about just process and systems. And one thing ByteDance does so well is they systemize growth. I mean, the growth strategy and engine and process behind TikTok's ascent is not by accident. TikTok is not just a viral sensation that just went crazy. There was an incredibly detailed, meticulous growth strategy that we put into place. And, and that's, I think, one of ByteDance's core strengths is just how systematic they make growth and the user acquisition. And so I learned some of that. And so you just, you just pick up different things at your different spots. Yeah, but so why leave? I mean, these sound like really cool roles. Why wouldn't you just stay in them and kind of continue to build and be surrounded by these people? Because you're clearly not doing that work anymore. Yeah. So in the summer of 2018, we were just about to rebrand TikTok at ByteDance. I had shifted to the ByteDance corporate team. And I started getting a little disenchanted by... And we had created just like an incredible attention addiction drug. And it's not me to like... You know, I think there's obviously a lot of great applications of TikTok. I still use the app to watch stand-up videos and animal videos and things that I've sort of trained the algorithm for myself. But I was starting to get concerned about, especially younger people, and just what it's doing to somebody that is just spending six, seven, eight hours a day. We would champion them as power users. I started thinking, well, a 14-year-old is on TikTok seven hours a day every day. It, there's got to be some some side effects there of how they're going to develop as people and particularly develop socially because it kind of gives you, you know, this warped view of a social interaction. You're, you know, they, I still to this day think it's kind of twisted that we still call these social media. It's consumption media. There really isn't anything social about TikTok or YouTube and even Instagram is shifting a lot, which mm -hmm, a lot of people mm -hmm. don't, don't like, but it, it's consumption media. It's not social mm -hmm. media. Mm -hmm. And I started voicing and just talking about some of these concerns, but you know, as a company, like there wasn't really room to have those conversations and you got to keep growing and you, know, you got to keep acquiring users and keeping them on the app. And like, that's the business model. Like people always complain about Facebook or Instagram or YouTube or TikTok or Twitter in terms of the decisions they make to feed you content that keeps you on the platform, even if it's not I'd say healthy for you, but that's the business model. The business model is advertising and it requires just growing views. Our financial market requires you as a company to always grow no matter how big you already are. So some of this is like not really the fault of these companies, but just the product of the system that we've kind of set up. And you know, obviously I don't want to go down that rabbit hole because that, that can be a long conversation about how to address that. But I just became increasingly curious about 
those kind of side effects. And mm-hmm. I think for mm-hmm. me, it's like when I started, I, I say like became unplugged from the matrix a little bit up until that point. But you had to, you had to go enter the matrix. I had to enter like, the matrix. Yeah. And, and for me, yeah. the matrix was trying to climb the, the, the ladder of Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I started realizing that's not really what's making me happy. That's mm-hmm. not making me fulfilled. It's not really fitting my values. And so that was sort of the beginning of this transition. It didn't happen right away, but eventually, you know, I was also in a position where I was increasingly spending more time in Beijing and probably would have had a hard time continuing my role unless I moved there. You know, I didn't want to move my dog there. I didn't want to leave her. And so there's other factors for sure that were like unique to, to that situation at the time that was making it hard for me. But, but fundamentally, yeah, I just, I wanted to take what I learned in product. And once it became apparent that like TikTok wasn't going to be a fit for me long-term and which is again, back to like that saying of, we talked about earlier where I thrive better when things are early and unknown. And at this point, TikTok had become a very, you know, mature product. It was more about growing. There wasn't really a lot of like product development work to be done anymore. And, you know, TikTok needed more seasoned big company leaders and managers of lots of people, which is also not what I'm good at. And so for a lot of reasons, it made sense for me to move on. And then I realized like I've had issues personally around building relationships and maintaining relationships and having, you know, what I call at loop, like kind of social confidence, in a lot of situations. And I looked around and said, a lot of people are struggling with this and a lot more are going to struggle with this because of, of how much the digital world, and it's not specific to TikTok, but just in general, the digital world kind of controls our lives and the information we receive and the sort of echo chambers and bubbles we sort of get isolated into. And it just became increasingly clear to me that there's a need to tackle this problem and I would like to be part of the solution. So how do you solve that? Like we've had this conversation and it just seems untenable. There's these big machinations and how we consume media, how we consume content, how we interact with each other now that honestly, James, make it harder to kind of like quiet the noise. Yeah. So it's not a small problem to take on. And, you know, I I look at this as like similar to people that are taking on climate change as a big problem, which is also a part of my life in terms of some of the unpaid work I do. But uh, I hear you have a podcasting problem like me. Yeah, exactly. And so I I think you just, when you have a big problem like that, you just got to start somewhere that is a little more specific. And for us at Loop today, we're focused specifically on social anxiety and helping people overcome kind of how that shows up in day-to-day interactions, whether it's at work or in, you know, friends or family or neighbors. And yeah, we have a larger vision of how we'll grow beyond that in terms of tackling this like larger, what we call social health issue that we're seeing across society and for a lot of people, but you got to start small. You got to start in something specific. You can't start by trying to solve the giant problem from day one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how do you find the energy or how do you find the focus to pick off the problem, find the pieces of the problem that you can solve? And then how do you do it? Trial and error (laughs) iteration. (laughs) I mean, when we started Loop is kind of same problem we're trying to solve with a different approach. It didn't end up finding product market fit, didn't end up working out. It was sort of a more of like a on-demand live audio peer support. So you could join Mm -hmm. these like little rooms up to, Mm -hmm. and then we had like eight to 10 people max to talk mm-hmm. about whether you're in a toxic relationship or whether you're dealing with imposter syndrome. And people people loved that. I mean, we would join and really, really enjoy being part of it. And we did a good job of guiding the use case. Like we, these didn't end up becoming spaces where people were talking about, I don't know, just sports, selling NFTs <laughs> and all that, like all that stuff. So we did a good job of kind of containing it towards the use case, but it was kind of sitting in between like a mental health service and a social platform. And it's like uncanny Valley wasn't creating enough value as a mental health service. Cause it was all peer to peer. You're not going to pay for that necessarily. And wasn't going to scale socially unless we took the guardrails off of it. So it didn't work out as we had planned, although a, there were a lot of people that used it and got benefit from it, but it was just part of this journey, right? Of like, you have a big problem. You start with a solution. That solution doesn't work through that solution, not working you learn more about it. And we did learn a lot through that phase of why people are using this app. Like 
why you don't have strong enough relationships and social experiences to have outside of that and you know why they kind of default to this and why they need this and it just helped showed us a light that you know there's a real social health crisis going on for a lot of people and it's a, a little different i mean it overlaps of course with mental health and physical health all these things overlap but there's a need to address this in a more focused way in a more direct way and make that very accessible and that kind of drove this latest chapter of what we're doing that is showing a lot, a lot of positive signals. And I think we have figured it out. I mean, we, obviously we figured it out in terms of like the right starting point. And so now, you know, we launched the beta and we're off and running, but I think it, it took a while to find that right starting point. And it, you just, you got to have some humility. You got to be willing to stumble. You got to be willing to kind of fall over and iterate and pivot. And, you know, it's just, that's the nature sometimes of startups. Your first idea doesn't always work as planned and you just can't let that be the end of it. If you really believe in what you're working on and you have a team, that's like probably my thing I'm most thankful for is the group of people that I have with me at Loop and there's zero chance, zero chance I would have figured this out without them. Absolutely zero chance. And so, yeah, I think it's just having, there's that iterative mindset. Yeah. I want to back up a little bit. You talk about the social health crisis. I, there's a lot in the news that people are hearing about mental health, right? It's something we're talking about and there's a lot of solutions out there. But I guess, can you unpack like what is social health? What is the social health crisis that you're talking about and how is it addressed or how is it manifesting itself in the places we work and the places we live? So one way to think about this, and someone summed this up really well, is if physical health is a sort of product of the state of your body and mental health is a product of the state of your mind. Social health is a product of the state of your relationships. Mm -hmm. And that I think, you know, relationships are, are hard and they're, they're getting harder because there are a lot of external factors that are making them harder. And, you know, the three that I talk about a lot are one, our addiction to social media, it, it is making it harder, limiting people, especially younger people as they age into adulthood, we're limiting their social experiences and social exposure. And we are for ourselves as too, as adults, like we're just, you know, time we would have spent with other people. We're spending in these sort of rabbit holes of entertainment and in some cases divisiveness. And, you know, when you have less social exposure day to day, you're going to have more anxiety when you do engage or, you know, when something goes sideways in an experience with somebody, you're more likely to mishandle it if you let it get to you deeper, if you have limited experience confronting that. So I think mm -hmm. that's a factor. The pandemic obviously has just completely changed how we work and live, but it also just disrupted our social lives in a huge way. And there is a lot of divisiveness, polarization. There's more tribalism, I think, today than I've seen in my brief history being alive. but there's all these reasons that I think are challenging our social health, our ability to build and sustain healthy relationships. It was mm -hmm. hard for some people in, in general. And, you know, there's a lot of also personal issues that drive that, you know, dealing with trauma, experiencing trauma, low self-esteem. You know, these are just poor social development from just how you're raised or the experiences you have. That was, that was for me, like I, you know, I didn't develop a lot of my social skills early on. And so when I got to adulthood and it's kind of expected that you can handle all these situations, a lot of ones I couldn't. And so there are a lot of factors here, but it's a problem getting worse. And I think an easy way to see that is the increase in loneliness. Today mm -hmm. in the U.S., 36% of adults identify as severely lonely, 61% of adolescents and teens that's a big number that identify as severely lonely. And you know what the clinical science shows you is loneliness is really a product of lacking high quality relationships in your life. It's not quantity relationships, it's high quality relationships. And you know, I think of a world where a lot of people's relationships are through social media. Those aren't necessarily high quality relationships that like you can count on when you really need them. And so there's just there's a lot of factors driving this need. And that's why this is such an important problem to work on. So how does this overlap with work, right? Because it seems like a lot of the commercial 
products in the mental health, in the social anxiety space are kind of geared in this like B2C mode. And I know that's kind of where you've built your career. That's where you've kind of started to build the product. But how does it manifest itself from a professional or a B2B standpoint? Yeah, so I can talk about how it shows up and then why we need like a, alternative solutions that we have today. I'll just put it that way. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. how it shows up is, all right, just think of like, it could be for some people really struggle speaking up in a meeting, right? They might have a great idea. They might have a great answer to something. But if we think of social anxiety specifically, because that's where we're starting, it's a fear of rejection or judgment from people, right? I mean, like mm-hmm. you can see a lot of situations where someone is not going to speak up because they might not have confidence in their idea. They might not want someone to sort of shoot it down. They want to be ready for that. And as a company, you want the best ideas to win, regardless of where they come from, right? And so like, it's detrimental to a company's bottom line if all the best ideas aren't always getting served up. So that's an example. Asking for help is another one. People are struggling with that more and more. Hard conversations at work, whether it's giving or receiving critical feedback or, or just talking a postmortem of something that didn't work out. These are the examples of situations where poor social health, poor social confidence, social anxiety really, really are detrimental, not just to the individuals, but to the company. And they're common things. Like those are things we've all experienced presenting in front of a group, you know, small talk with your team members that create a deeper connection, you know, creating friendship with your colleagues in a healthy way, in a way that has the proper boundaries set up and those kind of things, setting boundaries with people. Like that's something people struggle with. So it shows up in all over work. And when you think about it, in your prime adult years, most of us spend more time with our colleagues than we do with our own family and friends in terms of just quantity of hours. And we can debate or discuss whether that's right and the work-life balance issues, but that's not going to go away for most people. Like, you know, from 22 to 50, I would say definitely for myself, but for a lot of people, they spend more time interacting with colleagues and interacting with anybody else. And so you would think like if we're going to tackle improving how we interact with each other and how we build relationships together and the trust and open communication that comes from that, one would think you would start that with work before you even do it with family and friends and anybody else because of just that time spent in those adult years. You know, it's funny. Years ago, a lot of this would have felt like edge case stuff. And to your point of kind of not just the numbers you cited, but I think it's kind of plainly in front of all of us with quote unquote social media, like the devices, the isolation, Zoom screens, we're not given as many opportunities. Now, we've kind of a handful of us have kind of lived and bridged both worlds, right? A lot of the listeners of this podcast, like we remember a time when we didn't have this thing in our pocket, even though we are all probably addicted to it. It's the numbers are bigger than they seem. I think that that's, what's always been kind of jarring to me. And that's why I think the solutions are more important than they've ever been. But I just, how do you solve for this? Like, what are the methods that you can kind of help people with a thing that we're kind of trained to not talk about mm-hmm. that, you know, that might be taboo that, you know, if you want to get ahead, you better know how to do all these things. You better not tell people that you have a problem. Yeah. It's like sort of core to, I mean, we just started rolling out to employers just recently and we have our first couple of pilots going live shortly. And it's, it's a big part of the conversation is, is like, well, how do we even, how do we evangelize this? How do we get people a lot of people need this this help and they don't think of it in the terms of social anxiety. They don't think of it in the terms of social health. They don't might not even think of it at all and think, well, the reason they struggle with conversations or hard conversations or relationships is because other people stink, right? I mean, like we all do that. Like we're all like, ah, I'm fine. But like this person, we got an argument because because of them. Like we, we just, well, we all do that. Like it's just, you know, like one of my one of my favorite quotes of all time is Benjamin Franklin. And he says, how convenient it is to be a rational being. It gives one justification for anything one wants to do. <laughs> and like we, we rationalize everything. <laughs> but so the way we kind of break through that is our solution particularly is rooted on actually doing social interaction. So, you know, like I think like the difference for us is we're not diagnosing social anxiety disorder and treating it in a sort of traditional mental health lens, which 
is valuable. Like, I don't want to uh, seem like knocking that, but we're saying like, Hey, if, if you're struggling speaking up in meetings, as an example, you know, the only way to really get comfortable with that is to speak up in meetings. You're just mm-hmm. going to have to do it. And so we take much more of a, like a learning and development, talent development approach and help people build the habit of social interaction that they've been avoiding and to do it, of course, with support from our trainers and with helping them restructure some of their thinking around these situations. But it's much more pragmatic. It's much more practical. It's less around, we're going to try to diagnose everything that's going on since your childhood on why (laughs) you got here, which again, some people need that. And some people respond well to that modality of care. And, you know, there's a lot of great companies out there that offer therapy through work. And a lot of employers, thankfully, are embracing making therapy available. But for also a large number of people, they need a more like practical, pragmatic solution. And when it comes to improving how you interact with people and the confidence you have in doing so and your ability to connect with people, the best way to get there is to just do it. And so we take a different approach, I guess, than traditional mental health. We don't even really frame it as a a mental health solution. We frame it as a development solution. We're developing people's ability to have more confidence, trust, openness, and how they interact with each other. So Jay, I ask a lot of our guests this because I'm still trying to figure this out. And, And you're frankly scratching at an itch of something I've identified and I see happening, right? The last few years have been just exacerbated, not just by the pandemic, but by everything have been particularly crazy and challenging. And it's clear that you're a purpose-driven leader who's building something to solve a problem in kind of a small and nimble way in the way that you know how to do it. But given everything we're facing, the things that you're seeing, the things that you're solving for, what advice would you give to to other leaders at large organizations, at small companies and, and governments for for this kind of social health crisis that we're facing? So I'll start with just advice for leaders in general, but you know, things that I always could keep in mind, I've learned in my time, first and foremost, stay humble. Nobody has all the answers. Nobody's always right. It doesn't matter what your experience or background is. Humility, like, you know, I I tell people like you can be confidently humble. Mm -hmm. And I think that is sort of where like the sweet spot is. So that's Mm -hmm. first and foremost, um, as it relates to a little bit of social health is like check in on people. Don't wait for people to ask for help because what you don't realize is that can be really hard for people. That can be really difficult for a lot of different reasons that are not in your control and not in their control either. We're all shaped by different experiences. Like we forget sometimes that every single one of us has lived a different life and we all get caught up in like, well, my view of right and wrong, why isn't that just shared by everybody? Isn't it so Mm -hmm. obvious the things that I think so easy to ask for help. Like some people, it is easy to ask for help. And then you sit in there and you think, well, surely nobody else struggles with this, but you know, we all have different experiences and we all struggle in different areas. And I think the other piece from a leadership standpoint is just transparency. I like to err on the side of trusting people with information. And, you know, I find people do the best work when you're not hiding anything from them, even the bad news. Right. I mean, as a startup, right, you're constantly fundraising. There's always in the early days, the possibility of running out of funding. And like, there's no reason to hide that from your team or where you stand. And they're going to do far better work if they're aware of, you know, all the risks at hand and where we're at. You don't have to hide those things from people. Transparency is key for me. But around social health specifically, I think it's just recognizing that it shows up for people in different ways. Again, I'll go back to social anxiety. And again, that's one piece of this social health puzzle, right? It's just the piece we're starting with. But we all have it, first of all. If you didn't have it, you got a bigger problem, actually, because just like anxiety, period, it's a part of survival. Social anxiety, having some of it, it helps us avoid bad people and bad situations. (laughs) So you don't want zero social anxiety. But it shows up for people in different ways. And for some, it's presenting in front of a group. That's might be an obvious one to folks. For some, it's asking for help. For some, it's sharing an idea that could get shot down. For some, it's going on camera on Zoom, right? I mean, like how many times have we seen people 
off camera and think, oh, they're not interested. Oh, they're probably doing something else and just coasting in their job. Like, no, like, I mean, that, that could be the case, but in a lot of cases, you know, they're experiencing a form, an element of social anxiety that's making it hard for them to be on that camera. And so I think just having this stuff in mind just helps you be more empathetic and helps you be more understanding. And if someone is doing something that you feel is out of line or not in tune with how you want like things to go or that kind of stuff, like just don't assume that they're doing it for the reason that you think they are ask questions and approach the situations with empathy and compassion because social interaction is hard for a lot of people. It was hard for me. It continues in in a lot of ways. I mean, I'm much better than I was years ago, but I still struggle in a lot of areas and it's very real. People are difficult. People, I mean, people can suck sometimes, right? I mean, people can like be mean people. It's very understandable why that anxiety is there. Yeah. And I think there's almost like a humility to you don't have the answer of why someone is acting a certain way or why they are thinking a certain way. And sometimes you you can't know it like you just have to be okay knowing that you don't know it. You just kind of have to kind of have empathy and openness to kind of accept where they're coming from as being completely valid. Exactly. And, And a lot of times it's not your place to know it. Yeah, You know, like it's not your place to ask a, a team member, well, tell me why you behave this way. Right. Or tell right. me why it's like that can get kind of personal, like it's in the boundary setting. Right. But it's your place. It's all of our place to, to be more understanding, to be more compassionate, to be more patient with each other. And again, that's something that I think we're losing day to day in society, like convenience culture. Like, again, the, all these things get interconnected. I really take so much issue with convenience culture because I do think it's making us all impatient. Mm-hmm. Like how absurd it is now that we order something on Amazon. We're upset if it's not there within two hours. Mm-hmm. Like it's mm-hmm. insane. Like, you don't, there's nothing you need outside of, you know, a, a true life-saving medical device, in which case, if you're going to Amazon for that, there's other problems <laughs> going on. <laughs> but like, there's nothing you need from Amazon the day of. I mean, maybe in some edge cases there is, but the most sure. part are not. But, you know, convenience culture to me is also creating more of a generally impatient society. And that also contributes to how we interact with each other. And it, it, it trickles in there. Yeah, we, uh, there's a lot to be said about that's something you said at the beginning, like having kind of the time to think about it, to not have it at your fingertips instantly. We're, we're losing kind of those quiet moments to kind of figure things out, I think. Well, and, and so that's, I, I know something that it concerns you, but is there something that excites you about the future, James? I think there is more people talking about these issues than there were a few years ago. I think there's more awareness of some of this stuff. I do believe that there will always be enough people that care about the right things, that have the talent and the means and the ability to put solutions out there that will continue to try to solve some of this stuff. And I try to focus some of my time on looking at the folks doing that and being inspired by that. I think that, you know, getting a little bit different topic, but even on the on the climate front, like think of where we were 10 years ago to where we are today. We are nowhere near hitting our targets. Like that, I don't want to, give anybody an illusion that we're on a good path right now, but we are certainly investing more in solutions than we were several years ago. And there's Mm -hmm. momentum behind that. So yeah, I mean, we'll see how it all plays out because like part of the problem with technology in general is that we're really not good at fencing in the genuinely (laughs) helpful applications of it (laughs) and fencing out the unhelpful or the exploitative applications of it. And that's probably like, I think our biggest challenge as a species is we will continue to develop new technologies at a rapid pace. I mean, it's, it's, you know, obviously everyone, a good example is the recent chat GPT and the generative AI space. And everyone's excited about that. You know, we're not far away from external brain augmentation and like a lot of, you know, being able to even edit the genes of our own babies while they're in the womb. Like, I mean, there's a lot coming down the line and a lot of it can be used and had, and is, and oftentimes is originally developed to help for solve a problem. But we do a terrible job of kind of putting up walls 
towards the good applications and, and walling out the negative ones. And you know, a good example is the blockchain and crypto space. There are incredibly good uses of blockchain technology. NFTs are not one of them. They solve nothing. They are just primarily a giant Ponzi scheme, you know, with some fringe cases of real digital art and there's some fine use cases of it, but by and large, they were always unnecessary, but we just all got caught up in it. And a lot of people paid for it. And the people who paid for it weren't really the original hype machine, like end people paid for it, but it doesn't mean that there's not good use cases of blockchain. It just means NFTs are not one of them. And so that to me is like the biggest challenge we have is we're going to continue to develop new technology and we're going to do it at a more rapid and rapid, rapid pace than the cycles of innovation have happened in the past. Can we rein it in? Can we fence the good applications and fence out the bad ones? I don't have the answer to that. And there's lots of reasons to think we won't, but you know, you got to have hope if you you know want to stay sane. And like that to me is like one of the key challenges ahead. Something I've thought a lot about, you know, this kind of exponential curve of change that, that we're living on. Historically, we've had kind of more time to kind of grapple with it, to create the social norms, to create even the social, the political guardrails of what you can and can't do, you know, with cars, with telephones, with computers, et cetera. But the change is happening at such a fast clip that, that we, as individuals, or even kind of as mass society, we kind of can't catch our breath or understand the potential, not just edge cases, but the things that could go wrong with it, because we're on to the next thing, we're on to the next thing, or we're iteratively accelerating faster than we ever have before. And if, if you almost picture someone walking up that exponential curve, it's getting steeper and steeper, and we're, we're stumbling backwards into, into some of these negative order effects. Yeah, absolutely. And also... We see more and more, unfortunately, of like, we get caught up in these sort of extreme binaries and lose sight of everything in between and all the nuance and gray area. So like take capitalism, there are not just two options, either unbridled capitalism or pure socialism. Both of those systems are bad. They don't work. There's a space in between. We already live in that space and people just lose sight of that. So there is such thing as social capitalism and we need to continue to find in a nutshell, the way I think about how to solve for the problems and the inequities is not getting rid of it because I, I do think of all the models out there, it is the best model for the best outcome for the highest number of people. But what we can do is contain the minimum and maximum threshold, right? So to actually figuring out a model to have plenty of room for competition in between because competition does help drive innovation. It does like, we don't want a world where there's no room for competition. There's no reason to compete. There's no financial reward for winning. I do think we do need that, but we don't have to have the boundaries where we have them. We can raise the floor and lower the ceiling and still have plenty of room and incentive to compete and innovate. Yeah, no, absolutely. The truth is always somewhere in between. And as with many things, it's just kind of finding that kind of moderation and kind of the to your point, the floor and the ceiling and, and how to moderate it. So James, we've covered a lot of territory and we've got to wrap up soon, but I want to close with a couple of fun questions, unpack a little bit more of who you are and kind of what you, you've been working on and how that informs you. Okay, I'm ready. What's something about you that surprises people? I'm obsessed with the movie Frozen. <laughs> you got to let it go, man. I love it. I'm Olaf sitting on my, on my couch right now staring at me. <laughs> it's a surprisingly dark movie, actually. <laughs> If you've, if you've watched it more than more than a few times. I've watched which, it like so. 37 times. So beyond the movie Frozen, what is your go-to media escape? Are you more a, a film, a book, or a TV guy? More film and book. Given all of your work in the mental health space, what's a book that you might give to a friend or, or that we should think about? So a little bit my reading habits. I tend to read a lot more fiction than nonfiction. So I don't have a lot of recommendations like self-help books. And part of that is for me is like, I live in reality all day and I need to escape. <laughs> okay. So one of my favorite books to always recommend, it's a classic and you know, it's, it's not, maybe it sounds too cliche is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And mm -hmm. the reason I've always loved that book is 
it sort of is a lesson of what happens if you get lost in your obsession. There's nothing wrong with and being obsessive over something you care about, but you got to balance it. You got to ground yourself. You got to have people around you. I mean, Dr. Frankenstein essentially had nobody around him to ground him and he got completely lost in his obsession with his creation and it ended up leading to his demise and then the demise of people he cared about. So like that to me is a lesson there told through like just an awesome story and just and a great read. So that's, that's a book I always give to people. They usually read it when they were like in middle school, you know what I mean? But you got to read that as an adult. Like it's one of those books that I think not enough people reread as an adult. Hmm. There's, there's something really powerful about fiction and the lessons you can kind of uncover, unpack, or even trick people into learning mm-hmm. <laughs> by, by reading something that's not necessarily true. Who's someone out there that you would still want to get a coffee with? I am on a huge binge of just loving everything that Katie Porter does. So I would love to have coffee with Katie Porter. She, yeah, I just, I just, I totally vibe with her and just her approach and how like real she is and unapologetic she is. But yeah, I think it'd be cool to have coffee with her. Awesome. So James, what's one final piece of advice or challenge that you'd give to the next generation? The things worth having in life require a lot of work. And I got to remember that if something comes easy, it's likely a facade. It's likely not as good as it looks. And I think that goes with career, with relationships, with people, with anything. But things worth having take work and you got to put the work in. Like it's got to get away from instant gratification. That's that's just not where the most rewarding things in life happen. Hmm. Well, it's clear you've been putting in the work. And I I know we'll continue to have these conversations as you continue to build the things that you're building. So James, thanks for spending the time. And, you know, it's just really interesting to hear some of the lessons that that you've had along the way. Yeah, absolutely. It's always good to talk to you, Raman. Never a dull moment in our conversations, whether it's being recorded or not. So always (laughs) always enjoy it. (laughs) And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon.